My name is Rich Manap Rock, and uh, this is too cool being in Nassau, Costa Rica, one of my favorite places in the world when David called and uh, was describing what we were going to do and, and, and Chris talking about it and saying, well, it's kind of far away and it's, it's this place and we go, where is it, where is it? And they finally said, uh, Nassau. I have, this is my sixth year here. I uh, have been lucky enough to come for the last week of March and the first week of April. Um, usually with a group of sober guys, we all come here surfing and, and, and enjoying this, this town. And when you put um, some of the great passions in my life, you know, surfing and outside and experiencing God's universe because at the end of my drinking uh, I wasn't a go outside kind of guy that, that was one of the things that alcohol um, you know took from me or I surrendered to it whichever semantic version of that you want the bottom line was I didn't go outside the, the, I was almost like a vampire you know the sunlight and I didn't get along well um, and to come down here uh, surfing and, and being in the ocean and the, the palm trees and, and and coconuts, and you put that together um, with Alcoholics Anonymous. I, I can't imagine uh, a cooler place to do this. So thank you for all the hard work, David. And um, Patrick, I, I know, really helped, and this is just incredible. I think it's important with Steps 8 and 9 that I tell you a little bit about um, who I am, what I am, and what there, what there was to amend, uh, rather than jumping right into it. I'm a big fan of a guy named Ernest Kurtz. He wrote uh, two great books, a book called Not God, but more importantly, a book called The Spirituality of Imperfection. I'm not very good at uh, talking about God, at going right at it. Um, I haven't heard very many people that are, you know, describing it, uh, talking about the power. But in, in that book, The Spirituality of Imperfection, he says that's one of the neat things about Alcoholics Anonymous is what we do is uh, we, we tell a story, our story. And somewhere in that story, um, without me talking about it, you all get to see God work. And isn't that really why we're here? So... Um, that's also why those stories are in the back of the book. I thought that I was supposed to like relate to these people drinking or what they did or where they were from. You know, none of that. It actually says right in there that why these stories are, are in the book is hopefully it's an adequate cross-section of our membership and so that we can see how each of these members came to develop a personal relationship with God. Now that's what I'm supposed to be getting out of those stories when I'm reading them. And that's what I get out when I listen to you. Uh, and that is when I realize that I am you and you are me and we meet here in Nassar, Costa Rica and our spirits come together uh, where they were all along, but I had to come here to realize that. Uh, I grew up in, in Baltimore, Maryland is where I'm from, from two loving parents, no one in my entire family uh, drinks currently or ever has, and grandparents. Uh, I, I know nothing about genetic you know, theories of alcoholism. I'm not a scientist. I'm not into any of that. I mean, if, if it's genetic, right on. Uh, if it's not, my sponsor, I do have a sponsor. His name's Roger McMahon. Uh, Roger would like you to know that. He's from Bethany Beach, Delaware. He's getting older. Sometimes we've been in the hospital four times together in the last year with his heart. Uh, if I just told you Roger M, he'd be mad at me in case somebody needed to go visit him in the hospital. And if you're ever on the East Coast, uh, he would love to take you to a meeting. But, uh, 
Roger, my, my home group is a group called the Fresh Air Group. We, uh, we do exactly this type of thing. We read something out of the book and discuss it every Tuesday night uh, from 8 to 9 o'clock in Ocean City, Maryland. But um, anyways, Roger tells me he thinks that I became alcoholic by drinking too much. And I don't know any better, so I've just gone with, you know, what, what Roger said. And I know our book, you know, from reading it, talks about um, it seemed a shame that glass in hand we have warped our minds into such an obsession goes to that sliding scale that Chris was talking about that um, precisely to the extent that I've lost power, choice, and control in the drink is precisely the extent that I'm going to need this program of recovery as compared to a warm cup of coffee, some good meetings, and some new friends. And there are some people that that works very well for. Um, and it's the greatest thing of their life. And that doesn't discount their AA experience. It's equally as valid and as great as mine or, or anyone here. They came here, they made some new friends, they had a nice cup of coffee, and their lives are substantially better. Uh, that, that My experience has been much the same as, as everyone that I've heard. You know, it's, it's the alcoholic story. I think eventually we each have... Um, one story it kind of comes down to there's different details but it's really one story uh, you know and if, if anyone ever asks me to rewrite the first couple of paragraphs there and, and more about alcoholism which I'm sure they wouldn't want the only things that I could add, you know, from 1939 until now is, you know, I would say here are some of the methods we have tried, you know, switching from beer to wine, drinking on weekends only, you know, going to meetings, not going to meetings, going to meetings without doing the steps, you know, going to me. I, I could add some, you know, current AA experience into more about alcoholism, and much like everyone I've heard, um, you know, setting up your chairs and making your coffee and making sure your pamphlets were perfect and going to three meetings a day, um, it, it was just wholly insufficient for what I was up against, and I, I didn't know that, uh, but I was, you know, trying to do the best I could at that time, and I think I had to do that to do this, because... I think it's called the Peter Principle, where I will exist at the, at the lowest common denominator. I will only give, uh, I, I, wanna, I want the most from giving the least effort. You know, that's one of my defects that Peter was talking about. My whole life, I, you know, I want a lot and I don't want to work. You know, I want, I want you to be my friend, but I don't want to be a friend. You know, I want something for nothing. But uh, that's not how my family was. You know, they, they didn't drink and they were, they were loving, wonderful people. I went off... Um, I guess I'm going to tell you real quickly one story about why I drank because of that's what makes me alcoholic is what alcohol does for me, not to me. We've heard that distinguished wonderfully. What it did for me, I went to a private school in third grade. Um, they took me out of the public school where I had lots of friends. They sent me to a private school. They did that because they wanted me to have more and better than they ever had. I didn't see it that way. I thought my parents were trying to hurt me, not trying to help me. I was a third grader taken away from my friends, put on a school bus with a 45-minute bus ride each way with kids that for the first time told me what rich meant and what poor meant, and I learned that I was from a poor horse farm family. They called me names like Redneck. I didn't know what a redneck was. Third graders are very good. They just tell it how it is. And, and I started to experience what you all now have taught me is conscious separation. And that there's really only, you know, Chuck Chamberlain, uh, if there's such a thing as an enlightened alcoholic, you know, maybe he's pretty close. He said that there's only one problem that encompasses all problems, conscious separation, and only one solution that encompasses all solution, 
conscious connection, conscious contact. Um, and I was starting to separate. I didn't know that. I just knew I was different. I knew I was different because they were kind enough to tell me. I also got a kid named Reed whose job, Reed was in like 7th or 8th grade. His job was just to beat me up every day for something. He'd figure it out. And... Um, Anyways, this one day, they, some of the older kids asked if I wanted to skip class and do some drinking. I'd never skipped any class. I'd never done any drinking. But out of my mouth came, you bet. You know, a longing for companionship, really. But uh, we did some drinking, and I, I, they said, what do you drink? Uh, out of my mouth came bourbon. I don't know where that came from. I never had a drink with anything. Uh, it's a little bit embarrassing. I'll, I'll tell you that we didn't have that. We had peach schnapps, which is pretty sissy. Uh, there's a lot of people here from New Jersey and New York, and I know, you know it's not tough guy stuff. Peach schnapps. You didn't, but that, that, that's what it was. And it didn't matter what it was. It was what it did for me. Uh, when I drank that peach schnapps, I had to go to the bathroom was the next thing that I noticed. Uh, the bathroom, it said, boys on the door which was weird because I felt like a man for the first time in my life, you know. Uh, but I went into the boys' room. I made another decision in there. I intuitively knew uh, how to handle a situation that had previously been baffling me uh, with the addition of alcohol to my life. Uh, there was a girl that rode that school bus. Her name was Nikki, and I liked Nikki. I didn't know how to tell Nikki I liked Nikki. I didn't know how to talk to Nikki. But... Uh, on this day, I decided that I was going to go sit next to Nikki on the school bus. On our school bus, we had a, a rule that there was like in the middle of the bus, the older kids sat in the back of the bus. There was a hierarchy, you know, of, of age. And if you went past that, you know, middle line there on the school bus to where the older kids were, you got a beating. But on this day, I got on the school bus. I walked to the back of the bus to sit next to Nikki. Reed started to get up out of his seat to give me my beating. And as soon as he started to get up... I laid into him with everything that I had in me. He went totally out in the bus seat. And the whole school bus got really, really, really quiet. And I sat down next to Nikki. And Nikki was looking at me. And I was looking at Nikki. And uh, this feeling came over me like, man, some long overdue respect. You know, like I have to, this is the moment I've been waiting for, finally. And Nikki and I, we didn't say much. We just looked at each other. She got to her bus stop. She got off the bus. When she, before she got off the bus, she leaned over and gave me this kiss that some of you guys will remember. It's not like my aunt or my grandmother ever gave me. It was half on the lips, half on the cheek. My feet tingled. I mean, this was a big deal. And, and she got off. I eventually get off at my bus stop. I go in. My parents know I've been drunk. I mean, I'm drunk as a monkey, and uh, that's probably pretty appropriate for here. But uh, they, they know, and I'm in big trouble, you know, and I'm grounded forever. That's a big deal when you're in, like, seventh grade, you know, grounded forever, if anybody remembers that. Uh, I, I threw up all night long, and peach snops is, is not as good going out as it is going in. That's syrupy stuff. Sick, sick, sick as a dog. Woke up next to the toilet, and my dad left me there. And the thought went through in my head, you know, you're ever going to do any more of that drinking and all this trouble and sick as a dog. And just like that, I mean, it wasn't two seconds that in my mind was, you bet. You bet. What a small price to pay, sick as a dog and grounded forever for what I had going on on that school bus. I mean, being able to stand up to read for the first time in years, sitting next to Nikki, getting that kid. I mean, are you kidding me? And, and what I didn't know was, you know, somewhere deep inside I had something 
something clicked where I would surrender my life to alcohol one drink at a time. I was going to turn over every bit of morality and integrity that that wonderful family had taught me, and it was going to happen so slowly that I didn't even know it was happening because it was happening one drink at a time. Until eventually the thing that gave me that wonderful feeling that helped me so much that day was going to you know, do just what it did to Bill, turn and flight like a boomerang, come back and destroy my life. And in the process, I was going to take a lot of people with me. I eventually ended up, uh, after high school, got in trouble a lot in, in high school. Uh, weekends in jail, mom and dad would leave me there. Uh, drunk in public, underage alcohol. Uh, nothing that I don't want anyone to confuse me with. I've heard some you know, bad dudes in AA. I wasn't one of them. I was like drunk and stupid. You know, were, were my crimes. Um, and eventually went out to the University of San Diego to college. The only thing that's important about that uh, is that it was a Jesuit school. I had no idea what the Jesuits were. I had no idea what the Jesuits stood for. As a matter of fact, there's nothing I could have cared less about. Uh, it, it was beautiful, and they invited me there to play soccer, which I would much like Scott uh, promptly screwed up. I was assigned a uh, academic advisor. And I say that because it seems like a very generic term, doesn't it? I mean, that's pretty harmless. Academic advisor. I didn't see it that way. This lady's job, all she wanted to do was to help me pick the classes that I might graduate college in four years. That's, that was all. She wanted to help me do that. Um, I thought she was trying to tell me what to do, trying to tell me what classes to take, trying to hold me down. And the book talks about this, that you know, this, this defiance is almost one of the defining traits of, of the alcoholic. And when I look back through my life, there was lots of wonderful, well-meaning people trying to give me a bump in the right direction, trying to steer me, trying to help me. But anyone trying to help me, the way that I perceived it through my lens of alcoholism, if you were trying to help me, you were trying to hurt me, you were trying to hold me down, you were trying to tell me how to live my life. Back off, you've had your shot, you know, let me do this deal. So uh, I had that. I, I eventually, I'm a quick study of what's going on around me in, in San Diego. I know we have a uh, small San Diego contingent here. I, I, I picked up that uh, what was going on out there, at least as I saw it, was that stuff mattered. You know, what kind of car you drove, what kind of shoes you were wearing, uh, what kind of clothes you wore, what you did for a living, how much, how much scratch you had. And I don't know who told me this. I don't think anyone did, but somewhere deep down inside, I knew that no, no, no woman worthwhile wanted much to do with me unless I could take her out the right way. You know, it was, I was going to have to, you know, really take you on some nice dates, and that was going to take money, and I didn't have any. I was there on scholarship, uh, so I already, you know, I, I felt like... Um, you know, an outcast in that sense. There were some other kids that were there on the soccer team that were also there on scholarship, and we sort of bonded because we were, we were the we were the charity cases. Uh, these guys were from Tijuana, Mexico. It was 20 minutes away from the, from the school. I quickly made friends with them. They had lots of cousins right across the border, like lots of cousins, and uh, these guys knew how to get the green stuff that the rich kids like to smoke. Um, so, so now I got morning soccer practice. I got the Jesuit classes that this lady helped me pick out. Um, I got, uh, you know, the, this little business thing going on where we're bringing this across and I'm shrink wrapping it and the tiger won't eat. You, know, you guys remember that stuff, the commercials, a tiger won't eat what a tiger can't smell and it sucks the air out and, you know, I'm mailing that back east. Um, 
we're trying to go to class. We had two a day, then I have the evening practice. And then this lady says to me, that that's my academic advisor, she said, you know, you really need to have some other stuff on your resume other than being a, you know, a decent student and, and okay at soccer. In case you haven't heard, there's really not much of like a soccer career here in the United States. You need some stuff that makes it look like you're altruistic. That's what I think she said. I'm pretty sure it's not what she said. But uh, you guys are big on that word, altruistic, you know, and I didn't even know what it meant. What I heard her say was that it makes it look like you care about other people. And I get that. You know, I'm good at looking good on paper, and what do you want me to do? And I'll make it look like I care about you. What do you have in mind, lady? And she said, we've had for a long time the idea of getting the Office of Alcohol and Drug Education started here on the University of San Diego. And we want this uh, office to be, it's going to be a peer counseling program, students helping students with alcohol. Do we want to send you, Rich, to get qualified? We want to get you certified as an alcohol and drug counselor, and you're going to be the founder of the Office of Alcohol and Drug Education here at the University of San Diego. San Diego. And, and I, I said, that sounds great. And um, so they, they sent me, and I got certified. I can tell you all about the Jelnick curve. And I mean, I, I know more academic crap about the disease of alcoholism than anyone should know. Uh, there's nothing in here that, you know, says lack of knowledge. That was my dilemma. Um, you know, I knew all about it and was actively dying from it all at the same time. Um, so now my day is getting really busy. I get up at the morning soccer practice, then I have the Jesuit class. Uh, then I go to the afternoon practice, do a little bit of drinking, do some shrink wrap and get that stuff off. Now I have office hours from 7 to 10 p.m. where I have to counsel folks like you with your pathetic alcohol and drug problems. You know, and I'm giving out AA schedules to you people with the alcohol problems, sending other ones to some other programs if they seem more appropriate. And, uh, you know, by the way, when I get out of here at 10 o'clock, if any of you want to come to my dorm room, you know, I can get you set up with some green stuff. Um, and then I drink an awful lot to be able to fall asleep because I would have desperately tried to tell you that I have a very busy life. You know, if your life was like my life, you'd have to have a few drinks to fall asleep too. What I did not know, uh, the other topic here that goes along with eight and nine for me is liberty, freedom, and enjoying life is what's on the schedule. Um, and that's what I want to, you know, when I got to AA, like, what's the AA over-the-counter sleeping pill that you guys all take? Because without drinking, I could not sleep right for my first three to six months. I'm talking soaking wet pillow, waking up, my, you know, flipping it over, and then it soaks through the other way, and you get those yellow stains in the pillow. I mean, right through the pillowcase, and you got to go to Walmart and get new cheap pillows because you keep ruining pillows. I mean, and I'm like, and your lives seem to be getting better. And I'm thinking, like, man, I can't even sleep without drinking. But uh, what I learned is that you all said that through these 12 steps, a clear conscience makes for a soft pillow. And that's why I had, you know, that's why I couldn't sleep. Our book talks about that often the alcoholic lives a double life. If I had just two lives going on back then, that would have been bonus. I mean, I had so many different things going on at the same time. I was trying to be the Jesuit student, the soccer player, the alcohol counselor, you know, the, the marijuana importer. I mean, there, there was a lot of different conflicting things that required lots of alcohol, uh, you know, to, to help me sleep. This progresses by my senior year at that university. I'd switched over to bringing in the white stuff instead of the green stuff. It was a lot more money. Um, I'm just drinking and drinking and drinking to be able to deal with all of this. Finally, halfway through my senior year, um, I'm, I'm just so you know this, this in my pursuit of the material. Um, 
I was living in a house. It was the first house I ever owned. It was 423 Nautilus Street in La Jolla, which is one of the most beautiful communities in the world. Third house up on the right. I was driving a silver convertible BMW that had a number on the back that lets you know that they don't even make this BMW in the United States. I had to have this thing shipped here from Europe. That's how important I am. And I was dating the most beautiful girl at that school, or at least that's what you all told me. I don't really know, because at that point I date who you all think is the prettiest, because that's... I'm just that deep, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and, and we're having cereal at about six o'clock in the morning, and boom, boom, boom! Every single door in that house came down, and uh, the, the house was raided. And they put me in those plastic zip ties, uh, you know, like a hog, and carried me out of there to the federal penitentiary, the Metropolitan Correction Center in downtown San Diego. This was the first time I'd ever been in a federal penitentiary. The headlines of the San Diego Union Tribune, the Los Angeles Times, said Jesuit student, 27 kilos of cocaine. The federal sentencing guidelines said 45 years to life based on my criminal history record and the amount of cocaine. Um, in there, um, a lot of awakenings began for me in there. Because what happens for an alcoholic of my variety, I don't respond real well to what I call near misses. Near misses are like in high school, I drove a CJ7 Jeep. No doors, no roof. We'd put a keg in the back, I'd pile as many friends as I could, and we'd go out into a field or wherever we were going to drink and have a bonfire. Coming home, you know, I'd take the turn a little bit hot, coming around the turn, chilling off, driving like a hot dog. The Jeep rolls, the keg flies out, four or five of my friends fly out. Everybody's banged up and busted up, but basically okay. You know, I don't walk away from that going, man, there must really be a higher power at work. You know, that was, you know, thank you, God. I walk away. You know what my response is? You see that, man? I am really a good drunk driver. I mean, that was good stuff right there. You know, and, and that, that's how my apple is mine, where I think that I possess certain skills that are, you know, better when drinking. I'm like Mario Andretti. I can do NASCAR rolls and walk away. Stupid. But the book tells me that I've lost the ability to differentiate the truth from the false. You know, that I'm in, by the time that I realize these things are a problem, I'm often past the point of being able to do anything about it on human aid. Um, in there, the one thing I noticed, there's a couple thousand men, I think it houses like 2,600. Uh, I was the only guy in there that was guilty. Everybody else was innocent. I know that because it's all they talked about every single day. It was the mechanic's fault, you know, for not fixing the, the tail lights. And if the cop hadn't pulled him over for the tail light, they'd have never found the dope in the trunk. And when I get out of here, I'm going to talk to that mechanic and really straighten him out. And, you know, and if my wife hadn't, you know, lipped off and been the way she is, I'd have never had to hit her. And then they'd have never come in the house. And, well, well, you know, and it was like, looking back, what happened is I was surrounded with so many of me. That's what God did for me. That was the beginning of the awakening. He surrounded me with me. Eyeball to eyeball. All these guys talking like me, making excuses for their behaviors. And what I realized for the very first time that is a big deal for somebody like me is that I was who I was because of how I lived. And that that's why I was where I was. I was where I was because of who I was, and I was who I was because of how I lived. My tombstone is not going to read, Here lies Rich Bruckner, he meant well. You know, nobody cares what I meant or intended. I never once set out on a Friday night, took a nice shower, put on some nice clothes, and said, You know what I'm going to do tonight? I'm going to break my mother's heart to where she can never look me in the eye again, and her eyes drop whenever she looks at her only son. 
You know what I'm going to do tonight? I'm going to embarrass my sister to such an extent. My only little sister, three years younger than me, that looked up to me when we were growing up, up to about age 13. You know, like I was just her big brother. And you know what I'm going to do tonight? I'm going to go out and I'm going to embarrass her so much that she can't speak to me for the next six years. I never once intended any of that. You know, I always meant well when I went out, but that's not what alcohol's you know plans were for me. I spent nine months in, in, in that penitentiary, you know, surrounded by me, slowly realizing, you know, this this is who you are and what you do, and this is where you are. Um, to speed things up, I get out of there after nine months, and I, and, I, and I get out of there because it turns out that the day before trial, the DEA um, messed up some stuff on an affidavit to get the search warrant so they didn't have a right to come in the house in the first place, and all the evidence was suppressed. Uh, and that started a period of my life where I absolutely surrendered to alcohol. And to me, uh, surrender to alcohol means something entirely different than uh, what the first step and the first line in the 12 and 12, you know, who cares to admit complete defeat. Um, and I wanted to say, any, anything I say is my experience uh, with our program of recovery, with these 12 steps and, and, and this book, you know. I'm, I'm, I have nothing to offer anybody here other than my experience with it. If you've done it another way or another take, that that's cool. Um, and if I say something that's any different than anybody's sponsor, please listen to your sponsor. You know, I'm just, this is one knucklehead drunk's experience with our program. And, but what I have learned is that surrender, that's what an army does when they're getting beat. They put up the white flag of surrender. And I retreat. Because I know you got me whooped. And I come back. We bring in a new general. I put together a new plan. And I'm going to live to fight another day. You know, you got me. Today. But we're going to come at this thing another day from another angle. Defeat. <laughs> Different ball game. <laughs> the flag is done. I got no more plans, there's no more new generals, there's no more new angles. I mean, I am out of ideas. And to me, that's what our program is for. It's for an alcoholic of my type that's come to AA and exercised every possible option in Alcoholics Anonymous other than the one that's written down. That's what I think the 12 steps are. There's a wonderful program of recovery for a person who has exhausted everything you can think of to stop drinking. And... Uh, when I surrendered to alcohol, that was when I'd have told you if you'd have met me, you know, I would often give a bartender a twenty dollar tip. I'd sit it on the bar, I'd say, This is your tip. I'm an alcoholic. Give me a double bourbon and keep them coming. Every time I have to ask you for another one, you lose a dollar tip. You know? And I mean so there was no question in my mind about where I stood in my relation to alcohol at that point. And I started moving around the country from to Steamboat, Colorado, from Steamboat to Boulder, from Boulder to Ketchum, Sun Valley, Idaho, from Idaho to Utah. Uh, I couldn't go home. I had shamed my parents and sister. I would used everyone up. I have one aunt and uncle. They have three daughters that are my goddaughters. I would sometimes go home for Thanksgiving and promise those little girls, each of them, one at a time, would sit on their... You know, they call me Uncle Rich. I'm not I'm their godfather, not their uncle. But they'd say, Uncle Rich, are you coming for Christmas? And I'd say, you bet, Courtney. You bet. What do you want? And she'd tell me about the new toy that she wanted. Are you ready? Can I get that, Uncle Rich? I said, you got it, honey. 
how about you, Christy? And she'd sit up on you know, tell Uncle Rich, and you know, one more year with every intention in the world of being there for those little girls, I couldn't show up for Christmas. You know? And I had nothing to do with not wanting to. There was no place I would have rather been than there with my family and those little girls, you know, delivering on a promise. But I had lost the ability. And uh, I'd used up, the more you love me, the more I had destroyed the relationship. The book talks, you know, sweet relationships dead, you know, and, and relationships uprooted. I mean, that, that's these are pretty severe words, you know, that I've used to describe what I do to a relationship. You know, uprooting. It's not like I'm just going <laughs> to, there's some serious work to be done with what something's been uprooted. And if I'd have run into also just to, tell you how, how far I was from being able to differentiate the truth from the false. If I would have run into any of, of you beautiful women that are sitting here in a bar along the journey, you know, and, and you would have said, oh, so where are you from? What are you doing? You know, I would have told you that I'm traveling, you know, across the country. Like, in my mind, like I was some type of romantic sojourner. And the reality was, you know, I was trying to stay one step ahead of the law because at that point, my alcoholism, you know, I would stay in steamboat as long as I could until there was a warrant. And then guys like me, once I hear there's a warrant, I run. You know, I don't face and go through anything because I'm basically a coward. And then I get to the next place and I stay as long as my alcoholism will let me until there's a warrant. And then I run at night. And each time I go, you know, I leave a lot behind. I end up where eventually, after this moving around to where all big shot, you know, tough guy wannabe drug dealer types end up, and that's back on my mom's couch in Ocean City, Maryland. And, and, and that's where my journey to sobriety begins. Uh, I decide to start trying some of this AA stuff that I've been sending you all to for years, so it wasn't for lack of knowing about it. And I couldn't even believe that my mother let me return home. You know, one more time. And I was never, ever, ever going to drink again because this was my one last chance with my mother. And staying at my mom's house, there's only one rule at mom's house. You can stay here as long as you need to, Rich, as long as you don't drink. You know, we all know the rule at mom's house. And that's it. And, and, and I couldn't pull it off. I'll tell you, I'm bouncing in and out of AA. It lasted two and a half weeks at mom's house before she put me out. She eventually got a restraining order where I wasn't allowed in 100 yards of her or the house. My aunt and uncle had one at this point for two years. Now they uh, had just gotten it renewed uh, just to keep me away from those little girls so that I would stop hurting them uh, by not showing up and making promises I can't keep. And it seems like I can't do what you folks are doing in Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, and it's these steps and that inventory we heard about, and that might be good for you, but guys like me, I mean, the first rule in doing what I did for a living is you don't write anything on paper. You know, that's a paper trail. I just got out of the federal penitentiary. I don't want to go back. And you guys are all excited about this inventory stuff, saying things like, oh, it holds the key to the future. You know, and it's like, yeah, future right back to the penitentiary. And... I knew just enough about Alcoholics Anonymous to be really dangerous to myself and anybody that would listen. 
and there, there was a group of people uh, that really bothered me in AA. There were people that were sober, and they seemed kind of happy about it, you know, and they're smiling because I, I didn't get that. You know, I could not drink, but, you know, not drinking and being happy, that's, that's weird. I don't get that. And there was this one woman who, who was worse than any of them. Her name was Janine. I hated Janine. Janine was sickening to me. She would come in and out of the meetings. She always had this book in her hand. She was like, at that time, she was 23 years sober. Um, you know, I mean, like, who carries the book at 23 years sober? Haven't you read it? Like, what? <laughs> I mean, Really, every meeting, you need to think. And she doesn't call her sponsees sponsees. She doesn't call them pigeons. She calls them duckies. I mean, that, I mean, that is weak. I mean, just, just really lame. You know? And the duckies is like this string of six girls that have like 30 days, 60 days, 90 days. They each have a book. And they come in and out of the meetings in back of her like a mother duck and the duckies. And they're getting sober and happy in front of my eyes while I'm dying in alcoholics and others. Finally, I, I do a residential burglary on my mother's house uh, with the restraining order, which uh, tells you about my character. Um, I think tough guys probably do robberies and burglaries on other people. You know, I do my mom because she's not going to hurt me. Uh, I go in, and after going through the door in the restraining order, I'm crawling across her bedroom floor on my stomach. It's 3 o'clock in the morning. Uh, Bill and his story talks about when the morning terror and madness were on, I would steal from my wife's slender purse. I know exactly what that meant. It was 3 o'clock in the morning. I needed more of what I needed. I'm crawling on my stomach like a commando crawl. My mom's sleeping in her bed, in her house, with the door locked, keeps her purse under her bed. I'm reaching for the purse, her eyes comes off the side of the bed, and she catches me dead on the eyes and says, Rich, take it. Would you just take it? And you could lock me up, and you could beat me up, and I will tell you that uh, you can do a lot of things to me. And by this point, the price that I've been paying for alcoholism, you know, what, what was worse with the guys that I was working with in Tijuana, I, I don't really talk about that much from up here. I, I will tell you that um, I've been stabbed in Panama um, being down here I have a brand on the back of my shoulder that's an M that the guys in Mexico kidnapped me and branded me to make sure that I knew who I worked for uh, but the price was pretty high you could beat me up you can lock me up but mom don't give up you know what I mean that was a direct hit somewhere in my, in my heart where my mom had just taken it as far as she could you know just take it and I'd like to tell you that I didn't take her purse you know, that, that, but I did um, some time goes by I'm 36 days without a drink in Alcoholics Anonymous I'm trying one more time I'd had some liver problem. I wasn't supposed to take any Tylenol or anything else for a year. The doctor thought I'd had a liver biopsy, so I was having some physical problems with, with my body from drinking. All of these things might have been a clue to the average or temperate drinker, maybe the heavy drinker, you know, that might even die a few years before his time, but, you know, not even registering to me. And I decided that... Uh, I was at that place that I've heard described by people this weekend as the jumping off place. I couldn't go one more day without drinking, doing your AA sobriety, and I couldn't do one more day of drinking. I knew it. Couldn't have so much as one more drink. 
and the only way out I thought was just to take myself out and I took every tunnel wall that I could get a hold of anything in that medicine cabinet and, and, and here's what happens is I, is I fall down in this crappy place that I'm staying I fall out in the kitchen I hit the refrigerator the refrigerator hits the crappy wall the lady that lives next door happens to be homesick from work that day she hears the refrigerator fed against the wall she comes outside and looks through the front door. She sees feet on the ground and calls 911. I wake up back in the same hospital that I've been in three times prior in the same year, the Atlantic General Hospital. I don't know how that sequence of events lines itself up, but your job is to look for God while I tell the story. I end up in this hospital. When I come to, I'm in a paper hospital gown. My butt's hanging out. I'm hooked up to all kinds of tubes and stuff. I mean... If you have any dignity left, it's gone in these sexy gowns to put you in. And when I come to it, I clear my eyes. You guys can guess who's at the foot of my bed. Janine with the duckies. <laughs> and she's there, and she's got four of these girls with her. And Janine did not talk to me that day, but she did talk to the duckies. And what she said was, girls, I want you to take a good look. This is what happens to an alcoholic that refuses to take our steps. Let's go, girls. <laughs> Out they went. Now, Bill got the bright light and the clean wind and all of that. This is what happened to me in that hospital bed. Was The thought went through my head. I told you the level of defiance. Anyone trying to help me, I thought was trying to hurt me. And the thought that went through my head was, if you ever get out of here, you're going to find one of those guys with that book in their hand and a smile on their face. You're going to ask what they did and do everything they said. That's as good as it got from me, but it was totally sufficient. You know, and that started um, my life of August the 30th of, of 04 in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I haven't had a drink, a drug, or any medication that affects me in any way since that day. And the best part of it is what Scott talked about is it, honest to God, has not crossed my mind for a fleeting second. The most I think or talk about drinking is when I'm with you folks in these meetings. And the rest of the time is life. And I found that guy, and I asked him to be my sponsor, and he started taking me through this book, and he did everything that we've heard about. And we got up to steps eight and nine, and Roger looked at me, and he said, well, this is where the rubber meets the road. Alcoholics Anonymous, up to step nine, is largely theoretical. Up to step nine, and this is the quote, all you are up until step nine, Rich, all you are is a self-informed asshole. Nobody cares what your defects are. Nobody cares that you know them. Nobody cares that you offered them to God. Nobody cares that you've written some inventory. Up to step nine, you've done nothing to rub the record clean. And steps eight and nine, it's a spiritual axiom. You know, is we can clean up the wreckage of our past or it will clean us up, whichever way you want it. And Roger's encouragement to me was... Because when we get in steps eight and nine in the book, it talks about, you know, now still more action is needed. You know, and it gives us this spiritual pep talk that we heard about to keep moving, to keep moving uh, into getting out there. You know, we had the list. We made it when we took inventory. You know, thank God I didn't, you know, because I remember saying, you know, hey, don't we go out? I heard we go to the ocean and we set it on fire and send it out to sea. And he said, oh, my God, no, <laughs> you're going to need that. You know, and I added some some names to that eight step list that um, weren't on the fourth step, and they were just people that 
you know, are, are between me and a drink. You know, I didn't have any resentment associated with them. But if you're between me and what I need at about 2.30 in the morning, God bless you. You know, I, I'm not upset with you. You're, you're just there, you know. You might be the lady at the 24-hour food line, you know, who I'm going to pay with one more bad check. Get some change. I don't even know your name. I just need more of what I need. And there, there, there were some of those people. And he said, first is your mother. And uh, this was an area for me. My experience is that my, my ninth step was entirely sponsored, guided. I didn't approach one of them uh, without doing it when I was told and how I was told. My third step decision when I made it back at the third step was to turn my will and my life over to you. That was the best I could do at the third step. And I don't know that there's any difference now looking back uh, between turning my will and my life over to the power of Alcoholics Anonymous and you folks, uh, because you folks are as close as I get to see to God. And when I'm looking at you in the eye, you're God, and I'm God, and we're God together. And there's, uh, if there's no conscious separation, we're there. And um, I wish I'd have known that you guys were how and what God was going to look like when he showed up for me, that it, that it was going to be through you all. But that, that's, that's been my absolute experience. And we start, he says, start with your mother. You're going to take that lady on a date. You know, once a week, you're going to go to lunch or dinner or whatever she'll do with you, you do it. And I started doing that with my mother uh, weekly, weekly. And by, and by this point, uh, my first job in Alcoholics Anonymous, I was sweeping the floor in a picture frame shop. Uh, once my hands stopped shaking, I used to have to fold box corners that you put on the corners of, of picture frames when you're sending them places. But I couldn't fold them because uh, I was shaking so bad that he said, just sweep the floor. And it was a guy in AA that uh, would carve these hand-carved beautiful picture frames out of wood. And I'd sweep the floor and we'd listen to speaker tapes all day long. All the old guys, Norm Alpey and Chuck Chamberlain and, you know, Clancy and Tom Ivester and just tapes over and over all day. Sweep, 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 sweep before. You know, and that night we'd go to the AA meeting. And then by this time, I'm taking mom to dinner. I'd, I'd gotten my second AA job, which was vacuuming out swimming pools. And I got up at like 4 a.m. because the pools have to be clean. I found out by 10 o'clock, people wake up in the real world and go swimming. Uh, I didn't know people woke up before noon. And but you feel good sober, you know? Like waking up at 4 o'clock was starting to get exciting and seeing the sun come up and feeling it on my shoulders while I was doing that swimming pool. And, uh, and I was making $500 a week. And I don't know why it is, but I have more money left at the end of the week than I ever did when I was doing all the other stuff and driving the fancy cars and the houses. A little became a lot uh, in this part of the steps for me. You know, I'll start to straighten out, I think, spiritually. And it says that when we focus on the spiritual, that the material follows, never the other way around. And a little becomes a lot when the focus is spiritual. There's plenty of material. And never the other way around. I've tried it over and over and over again before I reach the place of I'm going to focus on spiritual. And I always had money to take mom to dinner. And somewhere along the line, I don't know which dinner it was, I wasn't counting, uh, but over that meal her eyes came up and she started to look at me in the eyes and we were talking mother to son. You know, we were talking son to mother. And I, this thing happened in the pit of my stomach that I still don't have adequate words for where... I now know how important it is that I'm a son to my mother so that I don't need to take a drink. I cannot postpone or evade that relationship. When she needs a light bulb changed, I need to be there. When she needs trash taken out because it's icy between her door and the thing, I need to be able to take that trash out. I can't, it, it's not okay anymore for, for me to want to be there and not be there. 
And I wish I could have expressed in some kind of words how important it was for me to be a son. Um, and and I, I just didn't know until I knew. And then came my sister, who hadn't talked to me for six years. When I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I had a set of season uh, NFL season tickets in, in the state of Maryland. Baltimore, our team is the Ravens. Um, whether you like them or not, who cares? I, I don't know why I had the tickets. I had a plastic bag with some clothes left in it when I came to you folks and, and a set of Raven season tickets. You know, isn't it weird the stuff that we arrived to the doorstep of AA with? I think they might have been the result of like that one last drug deal or something. But Roger said, send the tickets to your sister in Baltimore. She lived three hours away right near the stadium. He said, send that set of tickets to her. Let her go to the game. And I said, that's stupid. She hadn't talked to me in six years. These things are expensive. He said, I didn't ask you. I'm telling you, send them. And I did, and nothing happened. He said, send her the next set. And I said, that's really stupid. He said, I'm not asking you. I'm telling them. And I sent them. And I have no idea what happened that game. I think it was the third quarter, if I remember correctly. My phone rang. On the other end of that phone was my sister. Rich, Rich, did you just see that pass? They tied it up. They tied it up. And I have no idea, nor could I care less about anything on the face of the earth than what was happening in that football game. But my little sister was on the other end of that phone. And I kept sending the tickets, and we kept talking. The relationship, the, you know, just about football. And then she bought a little house down in the city in a place called Federal Hill, and they need fixing up. And on the weekends, after doing the swimming pools, I would drive and, and help her paint the walls in, in her little place and help her put together, snap together hardwood floor in the kitchen. And I was showing up, and I was being a big brother again, like you guys told me to do. And it never seemed like a good time. At the end of the work week, I was always tired. I never, like, thought it would be great, but it was never better than driving home on Sunday with that feeling of I was just a big brother. And that's an internal thing that's very hard to describe, but you know what I'm talking about if, if, you know, if that's going on. What I didn't know is some time would pass and her and I would become very close. Uh, one day a guy called, his name was Justin, he'd gotten to be my friend, he was dating my sister, and he called and said, Rich, uh, your father's no longer a part of your life, I would like to ask, you're a very big part of your sister's life. I would like to ask you for her hand in marriage. And I've never... I've never felt less qualified to do anything than to give away that little girl to some other guy asking me permission for something like that for a no good crap brother that I was to this little girl and she called me the next day and asked if I'd do her the honor of walking her down the aisle you know and I did that and I showed up dressed the way that you guys taught me to dress I showed up early I did the thing her way the way she wanted me to do it you know she picked the colors I said they're beautiful you know how can I help you what can I put into this not how can I you know criticize it or tweak it or do the other stuff that I used to do as a big brother um and man, it was it was one of those experiences you, you must not miss. And I was starting to pay back the IRS and um, liberty and freedom. Some of the old timers in my area do an old timer ski trip out west to Colorado, and they invited me at this point. You know, I had about three years sober, and um, maybe two. And I couldn't even believe that they invited me. I thought that was so cool, you know, to get to go skiing with the old timers and. And I, and I told Roger, and I was paying back the IRS, you know, a couple hundred bucks a week, and um, I owed them a lot of money. And I said, you know, these guys invited me to go skiing. And he said, how are you going to go skiing? You know, you still owe the IRS, you know, 30 some thousand dollars. 
and I, and I said, oh, I'm just not going to make this one month's payment. You know, I haven't paid them in 19 years. And I've been paying them for, you know, a year and a half straight if I miss one month's payment. You know, that, that's not a big deal. And he said, oh, so you're going to go skiing on somebody else's money. He said, if you stick the course out, there will be a day, there will be a day when you're standing at the top of that mountain and you're looking out over all of Colorado and you stand there knowing you don't know anybody a cent. And you will be a free man that day. But this is your decision. I didn't go on that trip. I kept paying. I'm even with the IRS. Um, I, I, I sit here today, man. I don't know anybody a penny on the face of the earth. You know, and I've been out there. I ended up. I got to go out there to Copper Mountain to a conference called the Fellowship of the Spirit. And I rode the chairlift up. Conferences in the summertime. There was still some snow on the peaks, and I stood on the top of that mountain. You know, free man, and I knew what he was talking about. And I said, that guy has never lied to me. And then as time went on, the next was this guy, Ethan. He was my best best friend in the world since we were little guys. He asked me to be the best man in his wedding while I was out in San Diego. He got married in Maryland. His father sent me, got me fitted for a tuxedo out there, got it matched up with the tuxedos everybody was wearing, sent me a plane ticket, spent good money for me to you know, have the honor of being the best man in my friend's wedding. The night before, I got tight at exactly the wrong time, like the book talks about. I wanted to be there. I was so excited. I went to have a few drinks before the wedding. And, um, you know, I, could, I, I couldn't get on the plane the next morning. And when you live like I live and you don't get on a you do something like that, that person goes on a secret list that I keep of the people that I can no longer face, I can no longer talk to, and I can no longer take your phone calls. And freedom, liberty, freedom from bondage of self, when we get here, I don't have anything. But you know what every new alcoholic has? They got caller ID. And my friend Ethan went on that list of where I had to look at that phone and I would have to make a decision whether or not I answered the phone or not. And there was a whole lot of people on that list for a lot of reasons, you know, in my first couple of years where I'd have to look before I answered the phone. If you've got to look before you answer the phone, that's an awesome clue that you're living in bondage yourself. A lot of you in this room call me, you know I answer the phone. Hello, Rich Bruckner. I had no idea the freedom to be able to pick up the phone and it doesn't matter who's on the other end of the phone. Hello, Rich Bruckner. But Ethan went on that list and when he would call, I couldn't answer. And my guts would get tighter and tighter and tighter. I heard his wife was lovely. I heard they had a child. I heard they had a second child. And the, the more time went on, the tighter my guts got. I called him up because Roger said he was next. He said, it's time to go make right with Ethan and his father. I called. I said, you know, I'm engaged in a life of death there and here in this ninth step. Um, in this thing called Alcoholics Anonymous and I have to do the best I can to right my wrongs here from my past so that I don't ever have to take another drink. I know you probably hate me, but I really need five minutes of your time if you hear me out. If you could get your father and mother to be there, that'd be great too. And he said, you can come Saturday at 8 a.m. if you can make it. And that was nine years later, so he remembered that I didn't show up. And I knew one thing for sure, that he'd been telling his wife and he'd been telling his kids about what a no-good drunken bum I was. It's three and a half hours. I left at five o'clock in the morning. I got there early, like you guys told me. I was about ten minutes early. I knocked on the door. His parents' car was in there. Ethan opened the door. His wife was in back of him in the kitchen island. There was a little girl at her feet. 
I saw his mother and father in the back of the kitchen, and what I did not see, I don't know where he came from to this day, this little boy came running from the back of that room and grabbed me around my leg like a tree trunk. He looked up dead in my eye and said, You're my Uncle Rich. Daddy said one day I'd meet you. And our book talks about that nine out of ten times when the approach is made in this fashion, the unexpected happens. He had not been telling them what a deadbeat drunk I was. He'd been telling them that they had an Uncle Rich that one day they'd get to meet. And what happened was right then and there, the scales of... Some of the scales of you know arrogance and, and ego, it was crystal clear to me that I'm the one that builds the wall between me and you. Because of my own self-centered fears, because of my own ego, my inability to say the words, I was wrong. You know, I missed out on a couple of years of those kids' lives. I missed out on a friendship with April. I'm the one that suffered as much as the other people maybe, but really me. And I build the wall between me and you and create my own conscious separation through the ego. What's happened since then is every time it snows, if we get a good snowstorm, I'll drive to Baltimore. I do the three and a half hours. I take those kids sleigh riding on this hill called the Charles Street Board of Education. At their birthdays, I'm there. On Christmas Eve, we go with my family, and then we go over to Ethan, and I see those kids and take some gifts. And I've been an active part. I mean, I've gotten to do all the stuff with these kids. And these kids look at me, and you know what they say, how five-year-olds are. They go, Uncle Rich, you show up on all the good days. You know, like it's an accident. And that's what Alcoholics Anonymous has allowed me to do, is show up on all the good days. And they're all good days when we're going at it with what we can put into it. I had, uh, at this point, you know, life was pretty good. And I had one on that ninth step, the, the, the big one. Um, I still had an outstanding warrant in the state of California. It was not an extraditable warrant. I had cleared up everything else I knew about. Uh, I was supposed to go serve five years in the penitentiary in, in San Diego on, a, on another thing. It, it was a DUI where I had some you know, non-conference approved dry goods in my pocket. And... Uh, and the judge, there was a program in California, I, I understand that it's still there, it's called the PC-1000 First-Time Offender Felony Diversion Program, and it was designed by, you know, the judge to give somebody like me a chance. He said, Mr. Bruckner, uh, I would have said you to PC-1000, you've got to go to 10 meetings of AA, you got to, you know, take some urine tests, you got to go do whatever you got to do. Looking back, it was so simple. But I told that judge, he said, if you do these things, it'll be as if this arrest never occurred. You won't have a felony on your record. If you fail to do these things, I promise I'm going to give you every day out of five years that this cocaine carries. Are we clear on that? I said, absolutely, Your Honor. I said that to every judge. Absolutely, judge. You'll never see me again. I'm going to be the model guy. And I meant it. And what I didn't know, that was that my alcoholism, you know, that I was in more trouble than I knew. I had no way could I make it to ten meetings and pee clean and do these things that I, I, I had just committed to this judge to do. And, and eventually it turned into a warrant, and I tell you what I do when there's a warrant, I run. Because I'm a coward. So now here it is, uh, you know, about 11 years later on this warrant, and I go back out. I tried to explain to Roger that this was a very bad idea. Um, I showed him the paragraphs in the ninth step where, where it said these acts of heroics. You know, I was I had an AA girlfriend. You know, this house, this good job with the swimming pools. I said I'm good. My mom needs me. I take out the trash. I change light bulbs. You know, 
she needs me. My sister and I are, you know, we're tight, you know. He said, hold, hold on a second. And this is why it's good to have a sponsor, because sponsors see things different. They have, you know, a, a third-eye perspective, an unattached perspective. He said, let's get some things straight. That girl you're dating, she's sober 17 years. She's got a God of her own and was sober a long time before your sorry ass came around. She's going to be just fine. And that house that you think you live in, first of all, it's a trailer, not a house, and you don't own it, you rent it. And this career you think you have, vacuuming swimming pools, somebody else can do that. And your mother and sister, all they've ever wanted you to do your whole life was to have some integrity and do the right thing. Have a discussion with them. Ask what they would have you do. And you all know what my mother said. So out I went, you know, and any of this uh, this fear and the faith, you know, I developed, Bill talks about what Peter was just talking about. Alcoholics Anonymous has given me a God of my understanding. And I've developed a relationship with this God through nothing but experience. And Bill, that was Bill's experience. He says this word. He says, at long last I saw, I felt, and then I believed. You know, I saw it working for you guys. I started to feel it through the process, and then boom, before you know it, I have a belief based on experience that's my own, that nobody here can take, you know, it's mine. I often say I had the worst bottom in the history of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I have the best recovery in the history of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I hope each of you feel the exact same way about yours, you know, and that's the way that I feel about, you know, my, my experience with this power we call God. And this stuff about, you know, faith and fear can't be in the same room at the same time. I have no idea what that is. I think that's just meeting talk. Uh, because I will tell you that I was scared to death. Uh, I got on that plane. I got on that plane because I was also sponsoring lots of guys. At that time, I was sponsoring a guy from New York. He was a longshoreman. His name was John. We called him Johnny the Chooch was his AA nickname. Um, I think Chooch means like goofball or, or something in New York. But he, that was his own, he came up with that for himself. And um, and the way that the way that AA has worked for me is it, it's like a train, you know. Sometimes the engine of the train will hit a cow or something that's in the tracks, and when it, a train you know gets going and has sharp turns and breaks loose, sometimes the caboose will fall off. But you very rarely hear about one of the center cars derailing. So if I'm in the center of that train and I got my sponsor and a couple of the guys that are my AA mentors ahead of me and I got a bunch of little knuckleheads that I'm sponsoring in back of me, I'm very well situated in the center of that train of Alcoholics Anonymous and I'm safe and protected. And by this point, that's what's going on for me. Johnny DeChooch is one of these guys. I'm going to tell you right now that he's dead. He ended up going back out. But on that day at my men's group, uh, we were sitting around in the living room of my house and I said, I'm scared to go out here and turn myself in and do this five years. Because my spot Roger said, this is a great time for you to do this five years. I didn't feel that way. You know, I did not think this was a great time to do five years. And, um, and I was sharing that I was going to go do it, but I was really scared. I wasn't sure what to do. And, and, and Johnny the Chooch looks at me and, and pardon this is a quote, anybody that might hear this. Is he looks at me and goes, are you fucking kidding me? You're my sponsor. You got to go. Because he knew that's what I would have told him he needed to do. You know? And it's what, after talking with those people, so out I went uh, to San Diego. 
to do this last five years. I went in front of the judge. Uh, I've been in and out of the bathroom before 8.30 that morning probably six times, uh, making some split-second decisions about which way to adjust the toilet. Uh, so this was not a graceful moment in my life. I had sweat circles. This was scary, you know. And I also at the same time had the faith that I was going to be okay with this power that you guys had connected me with. And I went in front of the judge. What I didn't know was that that judge had been sent 47 letters from all you folks in Alcoholics Anonymous saying what my life looked like and these guys I was helping and churches that I was mopping floors at where we didn't even have AA meetings. I mean, we had no relationship with these churches at all other than my sponsor said I need to start doing some stuff packing back into the stream of life. You know, becoming my third step decision was to become a giver rather than a taker. I didn't know it when I made it, but that's what it turned out to be. And... Uh, the judge looked at all of this stuff and, and said, I have no idea what to make of this, but uh, I'm not going to lock you up out here because whatever you're doing back there in Maryland seems to be working. By my count, you've been to over 2,000 meetings based on what these people were writing. I ordered you to go to 10 meetings. Uh, you did not do this the way that I said, but you did do it, Mr. Buckley. And uh, whatever this AA is, please go back there and keep doing whatever it is you're doing. And I walked out of that courtroom today, and I can't tell you how much bigger my God got that day. I walked out of there into that hallway, and I picked up the phone, and I said, Roger, Roger, tell all the guys I'm coming home. Tell them I'm coming home. Call my mom. And he said, whoa, 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 whoa. You can't come home until tomorrow by the time you get a plane ticket and stuff, right? And I said, right. He said, well, why don't you take a ride over there to that college that kicked you out? Remember those Jesuits? You brought a lot of shame to that institution. Why don't you try to straighten that out while you're out there? And I'm thinking, like, give me a break, man. Like, can, can I have, like, a minute to breathe? But it kind of seemed like small potatoes after, you know, I thought I was going away for five years. So I rode over there, and I, and I looked for the dean. Um, turned out it was the same dean that kicked me out. And I got to sit down uh, with her and do my ninth step and tell her that I understood that I brought a great deal of shame and guilt. I had no idea what the Jesuits stood for, that I now knew that they stood for building men of integrity. They were focused on education. They were focused on morality. Uh, they were focused on building good men and women, and I certainly did not represent them in that fashion. And I had no idea how to make this right, but I'll do whatever you tell me. That lady looked at me and said, if you're telling me the truth and you really want to make this right, you're going to come with me. And she walked me next door to a building I'd never seen. And she said, here's some paperwork. This is an application to our law school. I want you to fill this out. I want you to go to our law school and I want you to graduate and you're going to make us proud. That's how you can make this right. We don't like to kick people out. We like to graduate them. That's what makes us look good. And I stepped outside and I called Roger and I said that this lady has lost her mind. She has no idea that I have 36 arrests. Even if I went to law school, they're not going to let me take the bar exam if I should happen to pass, which I'm not because I'm not very smart. And even if I pass the bar exam, the ethics committee is never going to let me practice. And he said, did you just tell that lady that you would do whatever she said to make it right? And I said, yes, I did. He said, shut up and go fill out the paperwork. And I went back inside and I filled out the paperwork and 
some time later, I graduated from that law school at the top of my class because what happened was I did it through the ninth step, the AA way, where I showed up for every class a half an hour early and I stayed a half an hour late. I shook each teacher's hand every single day and I asked the question after class whether I had one or not. It's just like talking to a newcomer after a meeting. When we shake their hand and say, how you doing? It's not because we really care. We're just trying to get to know you. We're trying to build a relationship. You know, I don't need the details of what's going that day. I'm trying to build a relationship with a, with another human being. And, and you guys taught me how to do that. You know, and, and showing up early and staying late. It turns out these principles work great in other areas of life just as well. And I came out of there and I got the greatest job that you can get right out of law school. Uh, I got a job in, in Maryland. Our highest court is the circuit court. I got a job as the judicial clerk for the two circuit court judges writing their opinions. And um, the interview was interesting. I wish you all could have been there. They, uh, they, they, they said you have wonderful grades and your transcripts are great and you have wonderful recommendations. But your NCIC background, you know, report shows these 36 arrests. You know, what's, what's going on? And, and I said, fellas, um, I've had to disclose to you that, that I'm a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, I don't know how familiar you guys are with AA. Um, I don't know if you know this or not, but there's a substantial period of drinking required for membership. And, and they just started laughing. You know, and God put on the right there the right judges in front of me. And the same thing happened with the ethics committee. They just laughed when I told them the exact same thing. And... Um, my lesson, you know, and everything I talk about is just strictly, you know, as I said, my experience with our wonderful program. And this is the part where we have the chance to clean up the wreckage of our past or it will clean us up. They hired me. I told my sponsor, my home group, my men's group, you know, I thought that this was God's will for me. You know, this I am going to be a circuit court judicial, writing judicial opinions. I mean, me, a, a, a drunk. I mean, I couldn't even believe it. And I was supposed to start in six months when the other clerk finished. And about two weeks after getting hired, I get a phone call that they need to see me back at the judge's office. And I get back there. They sent the paperwork for my salary and stuff into our state's capital, which is Annapolis. And it came back. The judges said, we can't hire you. When we sent the paperwork in, it came back that you have three felony warrants out of the state of Colorado. You're a fugitive. They weren't on my fourth step. They weren't on my eighth step. I had no recollection. I had no idea what the warrants were even for. I didn't know that they existed. This was, you know, a more will be revealed deal. And I said, guys, I really, I had no idea this or I'd have told you, and I think you guys know that because I've told you everything else about me. Can I please have the opportunity to clear this up and still have this job if I can do it in the next six months? And they looked at each other, and they said, well, we just hired our first judicial clerk with 36 arrests with one more and off I went to Colorado and, um, and none of this you got to remember I'm doing this with $500 a week pool vacuuming money so all these amends I never thought I had enough money I never thought the time was right I never thought the universe was in alignment I did that when my sponsor said do them you know none of them did I feel this is a good time or a good thing to be doing so I go out to Colorado. It turns out it was an ex-employer. Uh, he was a lawyer that, that, that I worked for to do like clerical stuff in his office. And this phenomenon happened that was in my fourth step. It was one of the things that turned up. Was when people hire me, 
Um, I like to leave early on Fridays, and sometimes I don't really show up so much on Mondays, but I expect you to pay me the same as if I did. And when this guy stopped, you know, he started paying me in accordance with what I was actually doing instead of what I thought I was worth. Um, I supplemented my income out of his trust account and started writing myself checks, uh, three of them. And each check was of enough money that it was felony check fraud. And I sat down across from him and I, I said, uh, I made my ninth step amends and I don't know how to make this right. I'm on the ninth step of the state called Alcoholics Anonymous and right there to there. He said, whoa, 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 whoa. The ninth step of Alcoholics Anonymous? You know, I've been to Alcoholics Anonymous seven times and I've never made it past the third step. I stayed in Colorado the next three days. And Skip and I started through the book again, and it ended up being a 12-step call rather than a ninth step. You know, and he went across the street, and um, you know, and I gave him the money that I, that I owed him back, and, and he put in the call. And I came back, and I told the, the judges that it was all squared away, and I shook their head. You know, one more time, I got to keep my word. That's another gift that you all have given me through this power is the ability, you know, because I lack the power to keep my own word. That's pretty pathetic, but it's true. And now I've been given the power to show up where I say and when I say, and I've been given the power to follow through on, on a commitment. I used to say, you know, thank you all for, you know, for having me. It's quite an honor, you know, and a privilege, uh, you know, to, to be asked to talk anywhere in Alcoholics Anonymous. And, you know, Roger just looks at me and goes, I know, pal, we don't have honors and privileges in Alcoholics Anonymous. All we have around here are commitments and responsibilities. And that's the gift you guys have given me is the ability to keep a commitment and act out of a position of responsibility every now and then. Over the course of the next month that this job was getting ready to start, my phone rang. On the other end of that phone uh, was some man who I'd never talked to. He introduced himself to me. He said he was the state's attorney for the state of Maryland. And that he'd been given a large uh, a federal grant to hire a gang and narcotics prosecutor as his assistant state's attorney. And he'd been given my name um, as somebody who might know something about the importation of narcotics. And would I be interested in serving the state of Maryland as his assistant state's attorney in charge of the narcotics division? I went back to the judges and I said, judges, you know, you guys have given me this job and I've committed to doing it and they've called to give me this offer. Um, what should I do? And those two judges looked at me and said, kid, you'd be nuts if you don't take that job. You know? And um, I could tell you that one of the great freedoms for me is that I don't work a day in my life because when you love what you do, you don't go to work. And each day I sit across from somebody like me. But I don't really see a guy that did an armed robbery, you know, or knocked over a jewelry store or broke into a pharmacy. You know, a lot of times I see an alcoholic who needed another drink. I see an addict, you know. I see another human being, man, that was hurting, that, you know, under that lash of alcoholism you know, would do something that they might not have otherwise done and there's all kinds of options that I, that I get to offer to this person every day I feel like 
God has placed me where I, where I belong for now, that I'm of service in, in, in what I do, that there's not a distinction. I don't really have a thing called my home life or my AA life or my work life. You know, there's, there's no sections or fragments of my life. That is another freedom that, that I've been given, a tremendous freedom, because there was a long time where my girlfriend could never talk to my mother, my mother could never talk to my sister, my sister could certainly never talk to my girlfriend about my other girlfriend, you know, nobody could talk to my boss, you know, there's a game of keeping every part of my life separate, and now it's just one, and there's a tremendous amount of peace for me with that. It was hard at first. I'll tell you that I embarrassed myself a lot with this new job. Each morning, so I'd come into the courtroom. The judge would say, "Would the defendant please rise?" And I'd stand up, and the judge would say, "Sit down." And I'd turn red and sweat. You know, oh, God, I'm not the defendant anymore. <laughs> And each day of my life now, uh, I want to tell one other story real fast. This other guy that I got to work with, his name is Drew. And how we get to carry this message after you know we get through this work and the, and the nice steps, some of these things have been given to us. How little that I have to do with it, and I, I don't know how many guys that I've sponsored. I, I know that I've probably taken at this point about 70 some guys, you know, through, through the book, um, the, the way that I was, you know, through the, through the steps and all. And this guy, Drew, was a retired merchant marine and he was on a pension, and he kept getting pension checks every month, you know, and they're good, it's a good pension, and no matter how bad he would screw up, there was another check on the first of the month, and it was like a death wish for somebody like me, you know, and somebody like this Drew guy, and we finally got sat down, and he got through this step work, and he said, you know what I want to do is I want to uh, take my sailboat down to Boca del Toro, which which isn't far from where he said I want to there's this harbor and I want to you know anchor the thing and he's like sixty years old with like this Jimmy Buffett complex, you know, like I'm gonna sail off into the sunset and find my one particular harbor and you know listen to reggae and just chill it out, baby. And, uh, and I'm thinking, I'm thinking, you know, to myself, and there's any time I say that, there's you know, put on your helmet, and you know, I'm thinking, but I'm thinking, like, this is going to end badly, you know, because the guy's barely a couple months sober, yeah, he's been through the steps, but, you know, going to live out your days. So he comes to do a little scoping mission, he couldn't find any AA, he, uh, had a big book, and, and it turned out that, you know, very little English was going down. So we write New York, and, or, I'm sorry, we called New York, and we said to Marty, we got a case of Spanish big books, and I helped Drew uh, pack up his boat, you know, with this case of, of Spanish big books, and had his life, you know, on this thing, and, and off he went. And inside, I, I thought to myself, I, I, was, I, I knew enough from you guys teaching me, I wouldn't dare say a word, because what do I know? You know, here goes Drew, oh well. And off he went. I didn't hear from Drew um, for probably a good two years, and I just sort of thought he probably drank and died and whatever. And because uh, I've had several guys, you know, the Chooch, Johnny the Chooch being one of them, that we did, they did find in his bed, you know, dead. And uh, one day I was having a 
that day where I was getting sucked into the with the material world of you know, thinking that some days, you know, like anybody else, I start thinking my work is like important, you know, a case I'm working on has to turn out a certain way or whatever it is. And anyways, my phone rang and it was a weird number on there and I answered it, hello, Rich Buckner. And on the other end of the phone, some guy says, hola, me llamo Juan, yo soy apolico. Passes the phone. Some guy says, "Hola, man, I'm a Pablo. You'll say alcoholico." He passes the phone to some other guy. He says, "Memo Benito, you'll say alcoholico." And this goes on for like nine people telling me their names and that they're alcoholic. And then finally, like guy number eleven gets on the phone. Hey, Rich, this is Drew. It worked. You just talked to the Boca del Toro group of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he's all fired up, you know. And and he found he created the fellowship which he craved down there. You know, got this little group going. And um, so that's that. I uh, just want to say, I say two great things every day of my life. Every morning I get to stand up. I get to say to the judge, good morning, Your Honor. Rich Bruckner for the state of Maryland. And every night I get to come hang out with you folks and say the more important thing, which is, my name is Rich Bruckner. I'm an alcoholic. Thank you for my life. And that's all I got.